Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Well, we do have on the line with us today and uh, just a terrific version of a Shakespeare classic comedy. It's one of the one of the films that if you're introducing yourself to Shakespeare and you're not ready to jump into a, a Hamlet or a Macbeth or something pretty heavy, this is a great introduction and this is a great version. And it's done in such a way. Well, you'll we'll talk about it when we uh, when we sit down here with um, the director Casey. Wilder Mott. Uh, it was written by Shakespeare. We can't get away from that. But he, uh, but he wrote the screenplay for this. Very inventive. And um, the, basically, A Midsummer Night's Dream is one of Shakespeare's most beloved creations, a frolicking tale of lovesick young aristocrats, energetic but inept rustics, and mischievous woodland spirits is a staple of stage and screen in the past. It's been filmed. All kinds of different adaptations have been uh, done on this, but this one updates it to present-day Hollywood uh, and and all of this kind of and it's referred to as kind of a Boz Larman version of this uh, film like like in Romeo and Juliet a very much a reimagining of the sort of the visual landscape of it and this is certainly true of this one it's a terrific version of a midsummer night's dream and we're fortunate and lucky to have with us today the director of this film uh, and that would be Casey Wildermott Casey welcome to film school Hey, Mike. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, and, and thanks for that lovely introduction. You really you covered a lot of territory about the film there, so that gets <laughs> us off to a great start. Great. Oh, great. And by the way, this is completely tangential, but I've been a big fan of the musician that you have in the film, uh, Maya Doy Todd, for a while. It's great to see her and her music in the film, and she's used to very good effect. I just sort of wanted to get that out of the way because uh, it was great great to see her, and she's an accomplished actor as well in the film. She does a great job. So, uh, Yeah, she's fabulous, and she's actually someone who I just had a social relationship with. We, we weren't even really, I wouldn't go so far as to say friends, but we had a lot of friends in common. And I, I knew her well enough to reach out when I was doing this because I knew I wanted musicians to play Titania and Oberon. And, um, and she read it and she was really intrigued and she liked the idea that I wanted to have a whole sort of musical approach. And we went out to coffee and she said, look, I, I can't really vouch for my own acting chops. The last time I acted was in high school where, in fact, she played Hermia in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, wow. Um, oh. So at least she was familiar with the material. But I was just blown away by the work that she and Saul did, not only on the soundtrack, yeah. but, you know, Saul less so, because he, he has done a lot more acting. You know, he's done just about everything you can do. Right. But Mia, you know, because she led with, I haven't acted since I was 17 years old. I mean, she's so captivating in that role. So it was really a lot of fun to work with them. And her style of music very much suits. I mean, her previous work really does very much fit into this approach to the film. It's, it has that uh, that sort of lyrical, fantastic kind of feel to it already, or fanciful, if that's a better word. Yeah, well, anyway, let's. I just wanted to get that out of the way. I, I feel like I was sort of name-dropping there, but I, I just No, I love it. it. I, I'm, I'm always happy to meet people who are, you know, excited about Mia and Saul's contribution to the film, because yeah. that's something that I'm... That's a, just sort of a different, you know, direction that we took with this production that was really important to me. And, you know, frankly, like, not everyone 
you know, I, I haven't had anyone come up to me and say, like, well, why did you have that? That was stupid, or that didn't make sense, or those guys suck, or anything like that. <laughs> but very few people sort of lead with that, you know, and I'm always, like, I'm always grateful to hear people, you know, that particular choice that we made early on. And I got to say, since you mentioned, you know, Mia's musical palette, like, I really think that over the course of pre-production production, and particularly in post-production, where we did a lot of work on the soundtrack, like, her style really ended up having a huge influence on, on the movie as a whole, you know, because mm-hmm. she was such a valued uh, contributor and collaborator. And, you know, I just found myself kind of working more and more with her than I had thought I would initially. So I think this movie has a real Mia Doi Todd stamp on it. Oh, that's great. And I, I was hearing the music and I could hear her. I could hear her because I just like I said, I've been a fan of hers. And so I could hear that that style that and it's beautiful. Well, let's get to the film. I mean, uh, aside from some of her contribution, what was it that inspired you to take this approach to this classic Shakespeare comedy? I think it was two things that just sort of came together, one of which was this longstanding interest that I've had in Shakespeare's work, really since I was quite young, since I was about eight or nine years old. And I've had a variety of relationships with Shakespeare. I first, Well, I first discovered it through a film, through Zeffirelli's Hamlet, which I was just sort of mesmerized by, you know, and, and it was definitely over my head, but that was just the starting point for me. And then I was a child actor, a child stage actor, and, and did a lot of theater and was always really interested in Shakespeare in particular. And then as I got a little older and, and you know, started studying it, you know, in more of a, I wouldn't, I don't know, scholarly is probably not the right word, but, you know, I had more of a cognitive relationship with the work rather than just an artistic relationship to it. And studied it with some, you know, monumental scholars in college like Harold Bloom and Murray Biggs. So, and then I started directing Shakespeare plays. So, you know, it was just, it's just been this thing that I've done, you know, I've had a lot of different sort of angles on throughout my life. Um, and Midsummer Night's Dream uh, is probably, of all the plays, is the one that just kind of keeps on popping up. You know, I've been in it three times. I stage managed it once. You know, I, I've always loved it. I, I think it sort of speaks to elements of my childhood of growing up in this very sort of hippie, bohemian, wooded environment in, in way, way rural Northern California. Um, so I've always had sort of a personal fondness for it. So that was one. And then the second thing was, you know, I'd been working in Hollywood for about 10 or 12 years, and I'd had a a whole variety of jobs. I started out in the mailroom of a talent agency. I worked in script development, film finance. I worked in the international markets for a little while. So I'd seen many different uh, facets of the business. And from very early on, and, you know, I'd never since been really disabused of this perception like, it just has always struck me how much there's this sort of caste system in Hollywood. You know, there's there's obviously the sort of dimension of fame and power, you know, and that I think of as kind of like vertical. But there's this other component to it, which is job function, you know, and you have these like in- incredibly disparate types of people who are all working together. And I think, you know, because my first job was at a talent agency, I saw this really up close and personal because the agents at the talent agency not all of them, but, like, many of them are super corporate types. You know, they're, like, JD, MBA types. Some of them used to be accountants. Some of them used to be lawyers. Um, they wear sort of power suits to work every day. But then the guys who they're mostly on the phone with throughout the day, some of whom are, some of them are, like, these just out-of-control wacky artists, you know? I mean, I remember <laughs> the guy I worked for, one of his clients was John Fu, the writer John Fu, and he would, like, send us these pictures of him, like, 
you know, having a sword fight in Mongolia. He's like, hey, guys, just checking in. Like, I'm learning sword fighting in Mongolia this month. You know, let me know if there's any work for me, you know? <laughs> so it was just like, it was so kooky. It was so otherworldly. And that feels like it's at home in Midsummer Night's Dream because that's sort of what Midsummer Night's Dream is about as well. It's about these very, very different kinds of people all coming together under the umbrella of this one story. Yeah, and I absolutely so appreciate that because... Uh, what you're what you're saying because uh, this is a perfect project for sort of disabusing that sort of that caste system. That Shakespeare's approach in this is is so lyrical and so, like I said, fanciful and so bohemian, and it's so counter to that that kind of a culture that you're talking about. Uh, it really works. And and watching the film, this is a, sort of a maybe a little too insider as a somebody who watches a lot of movies. And that is when you would get to certain points in the film and we would change locations and and circumstances and settings, it, it would I would I kept thinking to myself, Wow, that works. <laughs> well that works, that works. I just kept kept saying that as I'm watching the film because it's a tricky you really this is kind of a high wire act. But but consistently found myself agreeing with your choices and the way you went about it and the way that you were able to introduce elements of Shakespeare in very creative ways. It's really an extremely clever film. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I mean, obviously I'm flattered to hear that. And, um, you know, I, I, should, I should credit all of the people before me who have tried to do the same thing, you know, a Shakespearean film adaptation and specifically a modern one, because I'll, I'll tell you right out, like, you know, I'd sort of dabbled in screenwriting a little bit. I went to film school and obviously did some screenwriting there and kind of, you know, would sort of chip away late at night sometimes. But I never really thought of myself, first and foremost, as a writer. I did a lot of script development with some really high-level writers and directors, and I learned, I learned a great deal more through doing that than I did through my own writing efforts. But one thing that I, that I did that I spent a lot of time um, focusing on in the early, early stages of this project was I would look at the modern Shakespeare adaptations that I really loved. I'd look at Joss Whedon's Much Ado, Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, the Ray Fiennes Coriolanus, which was written by John Logan, and I would look at the movie, the script, and the play and and really do a close analysis of those three in particular. I looked at some other ones as well, Richard. but I just considered... Richard the yeah, Third. Yeah, so Richard the Third. I looked at that one, of course, um... And what I discovered through doing that was that there really is a lot of screenwriting that goes on in doing these adaptations. You know, I mean, a guy like John Logan or Craig Pierce, for that matter, you know, they wouldn't have spent the time to do this if, they, if it wasn't like a real piece of meaty screenwriting. Right. Um, and sort of along this, you know, timeline, I, uh, I listened to this John Logan podcast, a BAFTA podcast that he did, and he talked about doing the Coriolanus adaptation. And he said the, the biggest first hurdle that he had to get past was this kind of reverence that he had for the source material. And, like, it took him a couple drafts before he could, like, break through that and create something distinctive and original that was based on this property, but that would be worth, would be worthy of doing a new thing with, you know? And he said, I think a lot of people have that, you know, they struggle with that in adaptation, because on the one hand, if you're adapting something, clearly you think there's something worthwhile there to begin with. But at the same time, like, you have, to, you have to put your own stamp on it, or it's like, why are you doing it, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, you know, I learned a lot from those guys from studying that process. Um, and I wanted to make it filmic, you know? I mean, I, number one, I wanted to make it cinematic. I wanted to make it have some scope and use real locations as opposed to sound stages and use a very rich, varied soundtrack. 
Um, but I also wanted it to have a kind of rhythm that, you know, film succeeds at in a way that theater doesn't, you know, sort of jumping about between different scenes and different locations, jumping back and forth through time a little bit. Those are the kinds of things that you don't typically have the freedom to do on stage, um, but you do in a film format. So I wanted to make sure that we were, you know, fully taking advantage of the medium we were working in uh, to make the movie. And I think it's important to point out that in Shakespeare's time, in the staging of Shakespeare's plays, there was a kind of proletarian perspective. There was a of the people. These things were were the target audience. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have said that back in that time, but the audience was, in fact, regular people. I don't know if that's the right. Absolutely, right? yeah. So, the groundlings. Gr- well, I mean, I often, you know, I often bring up the point when people talk about how Shakespeare is kind of associated with the high culture realm. That right. you know, in his day, two blocks away, what he was competing for. With all, for audiences was bears fighting dogs, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so exactly. it certainly wasn't considered high culture then. Right. It, there's no denying the brilliance, the brilliance of the writing, the brilliance of the staging, the plot development. There's sheer brilliance in what he did and how he did it. But at the end of the day, it had to appeal to an audience that was not of high culture. So, so to reinterpret it in ways that are playful, that are engaging, that are... are counter to the high-mindedness that a lot of people associate with with Shakespeare and is appropriate and again all of this works and you because you were so clever about and and we don't break we don't break away from the text of of Shakespeare which is another part that makes this such a, an accomplishment uh, we we are hearing Shakespeare as Shakespeare wrote it and and all of this would fall apart if it weren't for the fact that you had this amazingly wonderful cast who were in some ways feel like they were in on the joke you know they were they were playful with it they they found you found a tone to set for this cast and they carried it out exceptionally well yeah they nailed it and you know i mean kind of to your point of you know the fun we had with it i mean i have a deep reverence for this work as do a lot of the people who worked on this film But, like, we also wanted to lovingly poke fun at it, you know, and that's where some of, you know, we recontextualize some of the, like, iconic lines from other plays, you know, like, to be or not to be and out, out, damn spot. And we tried to, you know, like, kind of take the piss out of those a little bit. (laughs) Um, And everyone I was working with was on board for that. And, you know, also making the material contemporary. I mean, this was another thing that Shakespeare did, right, is, like, he was using, in almost all cases, he was using existing material himself, but he would update it in these really subtle, sophisticated ways for the Elizabethan stage, and he was actually making kind of, you know, what in some cases were like pretty risky uh, political and social statements about what was going on in England at the end of the, you know, around the turn of the century, 15th, 16th century. Right. Um, okay. Or 16th, 17th, rather. And, you know... That's something that we wanted to do with this as well, and I was lucky to work with actors who had that, in, I'd say actually in a lot of cases, a, sort of a, a much more rich and robust uh, relationship to the tradition than I myself have. I mean, I don't consider myself, I love Shakespeare, you know, like I said, it's been kind of this thread throughout my life, um, but working with guys like Lily and Hamish and Finn and, and Fran, you know, they're, I think they all, you know, in many ways, they're... Shakespearean IQ surpasses my own. So, you know, there was a certain amount of humility that I had to show in working with those guys. 
And on the other hand, like it worked out great, you know, because they came they came prepared with like lots of ideas about you know what their character was going to do and you know how it was all going to work out and and that made my job as the director a lot easier. I mean, someone asked me at a Q and A a couple weeks ago, what was it like directing such accomplished stage actors? And I said, you know, honestly, like I didn't have to direct them very much. You know, there was a lot of other stuff that I was working on. There were you know other actors that I was working with and obviously working on a lot of the camera setups and just the like the production logistics of what it's like to be on a set. Yeah. Um, but by and large, like there was sort of a contingent of the cast that I didn't have to invest a lot of time in, which was great. You know, it freed up my time to do other stuff. And it's truly an ensemble piece. While in some ways there's, there's, there's a, a, a focus on Hermia and I mean, there's certain characters that are pivotal in terms of setting the, the, the story in motion. The, the, the couples, the two couples, and, and they're the sort of uh, continuing kind of the, the evolution of their specific uh, relationships. But mm-hmm. it's really an ensemble piece. Um, so I don't know if we want to just get into specific names here, but Rachel uh, Lee Cook. I mean, there's a bunch of people. I, I really enjoyed uh, Avon. Uh, oh, I can't even. I'm sure I don't want to. Avon. Evan Joja. Yeah, Evan Joja, who I just yeah, saw. Yeah, I just saw in the year of uh, Spectacular Men, who was terrific in that. There's a lot of really winning personalities in these in these people that you cast in the film. And I apologize for butchering his name. Sorry about that. But, oh, but believe me, he's used to it. I mean, it took me about three weeks before I could get it right. So okay. don't don't apologize. So, and you know what I think a lot of that is is like the the way that the casting process unfolded was very organic and very informal. It was basically Fran, who's an old friend of mine from college and an actor I'd always had like high regard for. Yeah. And me, like getting together and, you know, we we had ninety percent of the cast in place before we brought on a casting director to kind of round everything out. And that was when we were in like late pre production, you know, and we just sort of it was like, well now we need these people. Right. And because that was how it all happened, it didn't go through an agency, it didn't go through a casting director. There wasn't some sort of, like, you know, big fat cat producer around. It was just me and Fran and a couple other guys, you know, like, getting together and trying to make this movie. So there was a real sort of bonhomie that was um, baked into the DNA of how it all happened from the outset. Yeah, and, well, we're just running out of time, so I want to get this in. It, it's opening tonight at the New Art Theater. Are you, and it looks like, are you there for a Q&A tonight at the, the New Art? Yeah, okay. I'm there tonight with... Finn Whitrock and Avin Joja and Fran Kranz, and the Q&A is going to be directed, uh, excuse me, is going to be moderated by the, the fabulous director, Ed Zwick, who's oh, a guy that worked I worked with. with in the past and I always kind of looked up to as a, as a young guy wanting to get into the business. Uh, it's at 7 o'clock at the New Art in West L.A. Right. We're doing a second Q&A tomorrow, Saturday at 7 uh, at the New Art, and that'll be me, Fran, and Alan Blumenfeld, who's a fabulous local L.A. stage actor who's also done tons of film and TV, and he plays a Gius, and that's going to be moderated by Jason Morphew, who's a great scholar from the English department at UCLA. So it, it sounds like you guys a great need time. to come out for yeah, it. It sounds like a great time. You'll have so much fun with this film, uh, You'll so much because the source material, we're familiar w- with this. We've seen, a, if you live long enough, you've seen a few uh, versions of A Midsummer summer night's dream but this is so playful and so fresh and modern and it works on top of, of the the most important thing is it works as a film
film. It works as a fun cinematic experience. Um, my congratulations uh, to you, uh, Casey Weldermott, for the work as a screenplay, uh, on the screenplay as well as the direction of it. Uh, congratulations and uh, have fun tonight, tomorrow night. People, the New Art Theater, great theater, great environment, wonderful place to see a film. And now you can just spend time with the people who created what you just watched on screen, and there's no better experience in, in going to a theater. Thanks so much, Mike. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. All right. Take care of yourself. We'll see you soon. All right. All right. Enjoy the rest of your show. <laughs> Bye, right. Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.